The Legacy of John Williams Celebrating the music and the art of Maestro John Williams Welcome, I am Maurizio Cascato, editor of The Legacy of John Williams. Uh, today I am here for a special podcast episode uh, together with my friend and collaborator, Tim Burden. Hello, Tim. Maurizio, hi. How are you? I'm good. Thank you very much, Tim. Today we are here for a special podcast episode to celebrate the world premiere of Superman in Concert, the long-awaited live-to-picture presentation of the 1978 classic film directed by Richard Donner, and starring Christopher Reeve, Margot Kidder, Gene Hackman, and Marlon Brando, featuring the Academy Award-nominated musical score by John Williams. The Live to Picture concert is produced by Film Concerts Live in collaboration with IMG Artists and City Light Concerts. The world premiere is taking place on April 29, 2022, at the KKL in Lucerne, Switzerland, with the City Light Symphony Orchestra conducted by Anthony Gabriele. To properly celebrate this world premiere, The Legacy of John Williams is presenting a two-part podcast episode. The guest of part one of this Superman special is conductor Anthony Gabriele. Hello Anthony and nice to have you here on The Legacy of John Williams podcast. Hello Maurizio, hi Tim, lovely to be here with you both, thank you for having me. Good to have you here with us, my show on the move. Uh, yes, <laughs> I nice my hashtag, hashtag. <laughs> which took a bit of a hiatus for a few years, but we won't talk about that. But now no, it's active no. and running. <laughs> Today, we want to talk with you, Anthony, about this specific movie and score 
but of course also about your career as a specialist of the live-to-film presentations. So the first question I have, which I'd love to kick off our conversation, is to talk broadly about John Williams. So do you remember when was the, the first time you encountered the music of John Williams and uh, what were the films or the soundtracks which had the most impact on you? I, I probably cannot pinpoint the exact moment that I was aware that I was listening to John Williams, but I have a strong feeling it would have been the main title from Star Wars, uh, which of course, when it came out at its time, was probably the single most popular piece of film music of the late 70s. Uh, I may not necessarily have known that that's what it was or what film from which it came, but I certainly do distinctly remember hearing something quite spectacular, which I later learned was the main title of, of Star Wars. Of course, when Star Wars came out in 1977, uh, I was only four, so <laughs> I didn't see the movie. Uh, <laughs> you know how old I am. Uh, so, uh, and I suspect the other piece of music I will have heard for certain will have been the two note motif, which we now know as the Jaws theme. Uh, so I, I think those two pieces stuck in my mind distinctly. The first time that I was acutely aware of the music of John Williams and was when I saw E.T. in 1982. My mother took me for my ninth birthday. And that was when I was first confronted, for want of a better word, with the music of John Williams en masse in the context of the film. And my life has never been the same since. <laughs> uh, I grew up in a household of Beethoven, Mozart, Haydn, Verdi, Puccini, Wagner, uh, and the great film scores of Max Steiner, Bernard Herrmann, uh, Miklos Roja. So that was, that was the musical environment of, of, of my upbringing. But when I saw E.T. and listened to a complete film score by John Williams in the context of that particular film where the protagonists on screen were of a similar age to me, um, being able to connect immediately with the dramatic narrative of the film, but also the dramatic narrative of the score. Uh, as I said, my life changed from then on and I properly started to investigate and research film music and what film music was and the purpose of film music and good film music and bad film music. And in particular, delving into the world of John Williams, who by 1982 had already written so many film scores, so much television music. So I had a lot of catching up to do as a nine-year-old. <laughs> <laughs> Makes a lot of sense, actually, because this is one of the true cornerstone of John Williams' legacy. And uh, and this is actually one of the reasons why we started this project, because I realized at some point that he has been such a beacon for so many, at least now two generations of, of people, of, mm. of aspiring musicians and now professional musicians who, you know, uh, as you were telling, heard the sound of the symphony orchestra for the first time in a movie theater with, with one of those masterpieces of movies like E.T. and Star Wars and, and Close Encounters. Mm. And suddenly something clicked into, into all of us, we can say. I'm not a musician, but I see that the impact that John Williams had on my life and also the choices that I made throughout my, my life is quite something, I think. And it's the same, I guess, for you and for Tim as well. 
I mean, the, the, the profound effect that this music has on a young musician at that stage, I had been studying the piano for maybe three, four years. I hadn't yet decided that I was going to be a professional musician, uh, but that certainly uh, helped convince me that this was one area that I seriously needed to pursue. At that stage, my knowledge was, you know, the great classical composers of the opera world, uh, some film music, movie musicals, because my mother enjoyed all the MGM movie musicals. So I was exposed to a great variety of things, but it was, there was something about the music of John Williams in terms of his film scores. It comes down to, to one word, the humanity in his musical writing, which, which touched me in a way that no other film composer had, had done so up until that point. And it remains with me to this day. Mm -hmm. Well, nine years old is a really good, it's a really good age, you know, it's kind of that, that wonder year period, isn't it? And mm -hmm. I'm interested to hear, whenever you say humanity, and it's a very good word to use because of the, you know, the last reel of E.T., we, we all know it is an amazing emotional release. And especially, obviously, the, you know, the kind of C major hypothesis and the rainbow. Whenever you were in there at the cinema, I mean, can you recall um, that kind of feeling? I mean, in the audience, was it literally, were there tears everywhere or was there a, like, was, a silence? Was this, this euphoria of this release of emotion. And I do remember being in floods of tears that, because like the characters in the film, they had grown attached to E.T. They grew to love him. He was, they brought him into their family. They brought him into their hearts. And there was a very strong bond. So when that bond was ripped apart and they had to stay on earth and he had to go back to his family, despite how inevitable everybody knew that that, that had to be, it was still heart-wrenching and gut-wrenching when it finally happened. But that wonderful music, which helps you release the emotions, but also come to that realization that this is the way it has to be. And the way that John Williams is able to craft that in, in a few phrases or with the use of distinct orchestration or the tonality that he chooses is remarkable. have such a profound effect on young listeners but also the adults in the audience who are blubbing like babies 
is incredible. And it still has that effect on me today. I conducted ET as, uh, already three times this year for the 40th anniversary, twice in Montpellier in January, and as recently as last week in, in London with the Philharmonia. And it's still, I find myself having to stop myself from getting too involved in the film because then I end up blubbing on the podium. And that's never a good look for a conductor. <laughs> um, but in a way, you almost have to allow yourself to get yourself that involved because as a conductor, you, you are the conduit for the composer. And it's your one of your roles is to make sure that the emotional, dramatic, musical narrative is being conveyed through the orchestra and to the audience and to make sure that that works in perfect synchronicity with the film so that you hit all those emotional points at the right time in the right way. So of course you have to give yourself over to the film and to the score in able to do that authentically and genuinely otherwise it feels contrived and, and just placed and academic and mechanical and it must never be academic or mechanical it has to connect immediately because if you don't make it connect then the audience can't connect and as I said your job is the conduit for the composer you can't stand in the way of what the music is trying to do and you know taking taking you back to that first point sitting in the in the movie theater and having that all unfold before your eyes and investing emotionally in the characters on the screen and the music giving you the wonderful permission to, to cry, to laugh, to, to scream uh, is, in, is an incredibly powerful thing. Absolutely, yes. And also another side of things, and this is something that relates to, I think, also to Superman. The music speaks about what's beyond the screen, adding that third dimension that is always spoken of when we talk about the greatest example of film music and film composing. And Superman, in this regard, I think is a good example of that because the music seems to suggest that mythological quality that is inside the story, inside the character. Absolutely. Yes, it's a comic book character is something that is two-dimensional you know in its essence but in the movie of course it, it gets more real because we see real people and we see a word unfolding in front of our eyes but the music is that thing that has that third dimension and makes us believe that this is superman this is someone from another planet and has incredible powers and can do anything and can fly and it's the music that makes us believe that he can fly. Absolutely, because music is, is what helps you engage emotionally. Text and words tell the story. They, they, they communicate what needs to be communicated. But in terms of the emotional connection to the characters, the emotional connections to the worlds that are created, and particularly in Richard Donner's film, the way he creates these three very distinct worlds and these three distinct realities for want of a better word and the way they're all tied in together from a from a filmic point of view but also the way John Williams keeps them very distinct but also intertwines them and he has these wonderful ways of creating these incredible juxtapositions where the worlds converge momentarily briefly or for a great length of time and that's the wonderful thing about a great film score is that when the words run out, when there is no text, when there is no script to convey a message or a story, it's the music that's doing all the work. When the actors aren't speaking, the music is. And, and with something like Superman, where you have these three distinct 
existences. You've got Krypton, you've got Smallville, you've got Metropolis. And these three worlds, each with their own soundscape, each with their own cinematographic sort of style of the, the filming and, and everything, the way the actors deliver the script in each of those sections, the way they speak, the choice of language. I mean, Krypton, the way Marlon Brando delivers his lines, it's, it's, very, it's a very stylized of the period for an actor of his caliber. And then you've got Smallville, the, the teenagers, the young world, and then you've got Metropolis, which is another world, again, this hustling, bustling, thriving energy, this metropolis, you know, and the way that John Williams finds distinct musical vocabulary for each of those three is really quite remarkable. The whole film is 88 minutes of music. It's, it's epic. It's, it's a big film score. The first part of the film is 53 of those minutes. There's a lot of exposition. There's a lot of storytelling. There's a lot of setting up of story, a lot of setting up of history, of characters. And it's all in this music, the way that John Williams is able to create this otherworldliness with the soundscape he creates with Krypton. And then the more down to earth reality life of, of, of Smallville, the humanity, the more earthly life. And then the hustle and bustle of the metropolis and the way he's able to energize the music when he starts working at the Daily Planet. It's, it's a new energy, it's a new idea, it's a new color the way the orchestration is used to create and accompany his day-to-day -day life, not just as Clark Kent, but also as Superman. So you have this big heroic, heraldic uh, themes and energized music when he turns into Superman, but then it becomes very modest and humble when he's back as Clark Kent. But there are always tinges of both in both because he is one and the same. And the way John Williams is able to create that sometimes very subtly and sometimes as plain as the nose on your face that he's telling you he's one in the same but the characters in the film aren't ready to realize that yet but it's incredible how it works and this this constant thread of where he's come from where he is where he belongs where he needs to go back to temporarily before he can be sent back is excuse the cliche but this musical umbilical cord which connects all three worlds because he's only passing through he has to go back complete his education so after Jonathan's death which is probably one of the most sublime pieces of writing in the first part of the score um, I mean it's it's like a moment of Puccini or Wagner where he he leads us down the path and even though we know it's coming we don't know it's coming until it happens and he tells you in one chord with one note and a tubular bell, long before anybody else on the screen has realized Jonathan has died. We hear it in the score like Puccini does in La Boheme when Mimi dies, there's one chord in the horns and we know she's just taken her last breath.
this wonderful operatic approach, this wonderful use of, of tone poem technique in terms of telling you what's going on dramatically before we see it on the screen or before other characters on the screen realize it. And then of course, from then he feels this draw back to where he came from because he knows he needs to go back and complete his education because he's not quite ready. Um, it's a little bit Star Wars in that, in that yeah. regard. <laughs> he's not there yet. He still has a bit to go. But this, this way that John Williams musically is constantly reminding Clark Kent of his origins and it's beautifully crafted, really is so sophisticated. These early scores of John Williams, this late 70s up until the mid to late 80s, this, this purple patch of, of, of composition where he was really discovering, but also found his, his musical language, his, his way of telling stories through the music, his, his way of using leitmotif in the way that Wagner did to give each character a signature tune, an idea. And he did it right through to all the ends of the Star Wars, hearing this tune and that tune, then hearing the two tunes put together, telling us that these two people come together at some stage or are related somehow. This wonderful idea that everyone is connected somehow in all these stories and the way he does it musically, the way that, that Verdi and Puccini and Wagner did it using leitmotif and, and, and connecting people through music, but also a very distinct musical language for each film. You can't take something from E.T. and put it in Close Encounters, and you can't take something from Close Encounters and put it in Superman. You can't do it, even though there are similarities and the, the quality of the writing is clearly John Williams and the orchestration and the use of unusual orchestral techniques to create this otherworldly quality in the music is so distinctly him. And that is, that is the mastery. And the wonderful thing about these scores is that they stand alone aside from the film. You can hear what's going on in the score. You can hear what's going on in the story. You can listen to these pieces independent of the film and your appreciation and enjoyment of the dramatic narrative of the film is not diminished because you're not watching the film. And in fact, when you then go back and watch the film, you have a better understanding of the function of the music and have a, a deeper understanding of the genius and the craft that's gone into creating these distinct musical worlds within the greater musical world of the film. things about Superman the movie is you know the, the structure of it uh, is so theatrical you know even the curtains at the very start yes and then you know at the very end you know, as soon as the main title finishes 
Then there's another massive highlight with the Planet Krypton queue. And, and this is what John Williams has a massive gift for, is the, the you know, the big reveal. And we, we've talked about this in previous podcasts, um, which is why he and Spielberg worked so well together. But mm-hmm. here with Richard Donner, there's, you know, those Americana scenes on in Smallville are just so, so, so powerful, aren't they? Yeah, because you know? they're honest and earnest and wholesome mm. and genuine. And that's why they work and that's that's the power of those scenes they're incredible yeah totally you conductors that do these special live to picture concerts are somehow privileged in a sense that when you are preparing to do one of these concerts you receive a, a, a package where you have a file of the movie where you can uh, select the the audio so you can really watch the whole movie without the music mm-hmm. but then you can also edit again and, and see how is the difference. And and you can realize the, and this is something that David Newman uh, told me in the interview that we did together a couple of years ago, uh, the transformative power of music, because suddenly a scene really changes completely when you see how the music works within the scene. It seems like an obvious thing to, to say, but it's absolutely not when you have the opportunity to, to watch the scene without the music. Absolutely. And it's one of those, those things I tell people when they, when they say, so how important is the music that it's got to be accurate? And, and does, re- does music really contribute that much to the success of communicating a story in film? I tell people, okay, the next time you watch a film, watch it with the sound down. And tell me how quickly you start looking at your watch or you start to disengage from what's happening on the screen. Because the text and the actors can only do so much. As I said earlier, that the emotional connection to the material can only happen through the music because that is telling you how you should be feeling, what you should be thinking. It gives you an insight into the emotional and psychological uh, wherewithal of the characters. And in the case of something like Bernard Herrmann, for example, I conduct um, Psycho and, and Vertigo. And with those two films, the characters on the screen may be saying something, but the music is betraying that those words, what they're really thinking, what they're really feeling, what's really going on, how the cogs are really turning in the head is in Bernard Herrmann music. And, and it, it's, it's deliberate. And this, this psychological twisting of, of what's going on. And sometimes it's, it's a bit like a Greek chorus in a play. They're mm-hmm. the ones that are really the, the voice of public opinion. This is exactly what's going on, despite what they might be saying. And the, the power, the transformative power of the music in terms of communicating the emotions of the characters, but also telling you what you should be thinking and feeling. So, of course, if you remove that, a substantial element of the storytelling techniques engaged in making film is removed and it really gets in the way because it's not there. <laughs> you were talking about the rehearsing. Um, Richard was saying, you, you know, would, would you be at your desk um, to the computer and then going through you know the the manuscript sheet music in sync with the film and, and just kind of literally is that what you've been you you did I suppose over two years ago at this stage exactly yes I've been I've been living with these babies for two years both volumes act one is 257 pages 
and Act Two is 194 pages. So it's they're, they're big, they're big tomes. As I said, 53 minutes of music in Act One and 35 minutes of music in Act Two. I mean, we don't see him as Superman and flying until 50 minutes into the film. It's the first time we see him when he leaves Krypton with the cape and he flies for the first time. The rest of that is all setting up the story. And it's incredible. When, when, when I study these film scores, and it depends on, on the film, with, certainly with something as big as this and something that's as intricate as this, and especially with the earlier John Williams film scores, I study them as film scores, independent of the, of the film to start with. I really delve into the writing, into looking at the themes, the motifs for each of the characters. I look at what orchestration he's chosen for each piece. Um, some of it's quite dense, some of it's quite sparse and quite transparent and deliberately so. For example, in the Krypton scenes, it's very sparse. It's, it's very ethereal sounding. Um, lots of high woodwind, lots of low pedal notes, not many big chord changes to create this sort of suspended disbelief world. So I really look at all of that because that in terms of rehearsing with an orchestra and, and giving them the insights into why things are written a certain way and why things have to be played a certain way is because they marry up perfectly with, with what the story is. But in order to do that, you really need to study the score and really learn, learn the orchestration, learn the structure of the music, learn the different sections, the different chapters within the chapters of the score and the three distinct worlds of, of music. But then I will go back and I will watch the film with the score intact. I watch the original cinema release just because it hasn't got time cut on the screen and punches and streamers running across. With some of the music, it's not quite the way we're doing it because it's been restructured for concert. But I put myself back into there to just remind myself of, of the power of the music and where it works and, and how it works. But then I go back and start studying the version that we do. And uh, I will listen to the various takes and the various cuts of the music um, so that I get a sense of how things work. Because some things stop quite abruptly, some things start a little sooner. There are different mergers uh, of things. So I really then look at the nuts and bolts of how the music for the concert has been constructed, because then I have to create a new musical arc for myself, especially if I'm very familiar with the original soundtrack release. I sort of have to unlearn a few things, unlearn some transitions. And uh, so I start to then really delve into the structure of how it works in this version, which is why I always go to the score first. It's the quickest way to relearn something or learn something completely new, seeing it on the page, watching the vertical bars, the horizontal nature of the music, looking at the density of the orchestration on the page. And then I will study it with the film, looking at the punches and streamers and, and do a full analysis of which hit points I have to get no matter what, because of emotional things, uh, cinematography things, getting out of the way of dialogue. I will go through meticulously study all of those points. And with, with the way that John Williams scores are written, the music breathes wonderfully well. I don't do any of them with click track. I do them all free time to the punches and streamers. It's the only way you can allow the music to breathe. Mm -hmm. 
it's the only way you can allow any sense of true musicality and true sense of rubato, yes. uh, where the music has its natural points where it wants to ebb and flow. And the thing is, if you do it to a click, which has been amortized across the across 16 bars of music, it's where they've got, okay, it's an average of 74.3 BPM across the, well, that's fine. However, where do you give the wind players time to breathe? Where do you give the brass players time to breathe? Where do you allow the string players to ease into the sound they make? And if, if it's too mechanical, it's too academic, you can't achieve those moments. And those moments are directly linked to the emotion of the film and the emotion of the characters. So you have to allow for this flexibility. Obviously the green streamers are the ones where you have to hit these points because they've been put there by John Williams to say, no matter what happens before, make sure you hit this point. And then there's the white streamers in the lead up to that. Sometimes every, every bar, if the music is very slow so that it doesn't drift too much. Uh, sometimes it's every two bars, depending on how busy the music is. In music that's very fast, it's often every bar to make sure that it keeps you honest in terms of the energy of the film so that you stay on top of the energy of the film. And then with the white ones, you kind of, depending on the nature of the music, if it's rhythmic and has drive, you stick to them because you want to give the film this wonderful momentum and you take the audience along in its wake and you, and you have them on, on the front foot of this energy. And the music that has a bit more ebb and flow and a bit of rubato, you sort of negotiate around the white streamers. You don't have to hit them all absolutely accurately. Mm -hmm. It's just John Williams' way of saying, you kind of have to be roughly here about now and roughly here about now. And if you get to a white streamer early, you know you need to slow down a little bit. If you get to one too late, you need to then speed up a little bit. So I then study eight bar phrases, 16 bar phrases, and look at where I can massage these tempi to make sure that I'm accompanying the dramatic narrative of, of the film, but then always do whatever I need to do to make sure that green streamers I always hit. this wonderful flexibility with these scores from from this period and pretty much all of the John Williams scores and it's the way that people like Bernard Herrmann used to write and Miklos Roja and Max Steiner and all those great and you know Alfred Newman these great fathers of Hollywood you know with a clock on on the podium keeping them to, I need to I need to have gotten through these six bars of music in 15 seconds and 
However you get there is your affair. And it allows you to then really accompany the film like a live show. I work a lot in, in opera and musical theater and that was my background. So for me, it's almost like accompanying a live production, except we don't have actors on stage, we have actors on a screen. The wonderful thing about a film is that it's wonderfully consistent. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing's going to change. So you can study things in the film when somebody goes to reach for something or goes to do something or turn to say something. And I, I study moments of the film like that as well, because then I'm not glued to the punches on streamers. I'm not glued to the clock. I'm really studying what the characters are doing in the scenes. And the reason I study this is to get in the head of the composer, where it's, whether it's Bernard Herrmann or John Williams or James Horner or Alan Silvestri or any of these composers who learned their craft by studying the masters that came before them. Get into their head and say, what inspired this music? Why is this chord here? Why is this note there? Why does this harp glissando happen? Why does why this articulation? And you look at the film, you find the answer. It's there because that's what inspired the composition. So then when you go back and reverse study, retrograde study, the music and the score, you go, that's why that's there. There's the buildup in the scene and that's where we arrive. Great. So instead of watching punches and streamers or a clock, I'll just follow what the actors are doing to get myself to where I need to be. And in doing so, you take the audience with you. Whereas if it's too mechanical, if it's too academic, and all you're doing is hitting points, you're, doing, you're, you're missing out on one fundamental job of the conductor as the conduit for the composer, taking the audience on the journey with you and taking the audience on the journey with the characters on the screen. And that's vitally important because you, you want them to have the same emotional response that the characters do on screen, or at the very least guide them towards what that response should be. And it's something that John Williams is, is, is a master. And you look at, he does it in ET, he does it in Close Encounters, Superman, Raiders, all that swashbuckling adventure music in, in, in Raiders is, is incredible. But also he boards the plane in America and with the change of accord, with the change of orchestration, with a few parallel harmonies, all of a sudden we're in Egypt. With the change of a few chords, a few notes, change of orchestral color, all of a sudden we are in Cairo. You can almost smell the camel up in the street. You know what I mean? It's, yes. it's that descriptive. It's, yes. And it's incredible how he does this. Likewise in Superman, when he's transported to his earthly existence, all of a sudden the character of the music changes. It becomes more simple, more human, more rustic, more basic, for want of a, a better word. Then as he grows up in Smallville, and then feels the draw back to Krypton to complete his education, we start to hear that come back in. And then we're drawn back to this otherworldly existence and the music changes again. So we're suspended in this other existence until then that changes right at the end where he becomes Superman, dons the cape and takes off. And we hear that theme ever so briefly. And then we are plunged into the thriving metropolis of Metropolis with honking car horns and the music gets busier and more urbane, more suburban, more gritty. 
And that's the thing. And as, as a conductor, it's vitally important that you take the audience, the listeners, the viewers on this journey with you so that they feel it as well. And you, you better inform them in terms of how they should be feeling about, about the story, about the characters. And that's one of the best aspects of my job. <laughs> <laughs> yes, in this regard, I think that the role of the film composer is to take care of both the bigger picture and also the smaller picture in the sense that he has to craft a perfectly shaped cue with a beginning, a middle and an end that works both for the scene but also for the overall context of the movie. And in this regard, I'm, I'm reminded of, of what is, in my opinion, probably the best scene in the movie, which is a very short and small scene, but it's so key. And it comes right after the flight sequence when Clark Kent is entering in Lois Lane's apartment. I know what you're going to talk about. It's, it's called Clark Loses His Nerve. Yes, exactly that. Yes. 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 41 yes. seconds of music, 41 yes. seconds, but... In that moment, you see him gather his strength, take the glasses off, and he's Superman, gathers his strength, he's about, but then you hear the change in the music. The change in the music is the change in him going, him losing his nerve. And then he puts the glasses back on and he becomes this almost clumsy, shy, geeky journalist. And he, he, he starts to speak differently and his voice gets all jittery and, and nervous and his words start to stumble and he trips over his tongue. And, but it's incredible. The, the change on the screen, I mean, Christopher Reeve was a master in that scene. It's such a transformation by doing so little, but in such a way that we know in that time exactly what's going on in his head, in his heart, in that 41 seconds of music. That's the genius of these short cues. And there are a lot of short cues in Superman, particularly in the second half, but they only need to be short cues because there's only, there's very little to say but it's said so poignantly and so succinctly. And this, this wonderful economy of use of music and, and also in the cinematography, economy of, of direction by Richard Donner. And you know there are so many films now where it's just wall-to-wall -wall music where you need a break because you, you lose the thread of what, of what the film is trying to say. And, and that's the danger with, with, a lot of more, with a lot of contemporary films is that there's just too much music. And, and yeah, sure, there's 88 minutes of music in Superman, but there's not as cliched as this sound. Not a single note is wasted. I think the performance of Christopher Reeve is really the product of a great actor. I mean, all the fans of the movie, of course, uh, are aware of the high-level caliber of his performance, but I don't think that he's generally has been credited in the past, especially back in the day when the movie was out, about the depth of his performance. And, and you see it on screen, it's just magnificent the way he moves, the way he uses his physicality, not just when he's doing Clark Kent, 
but especially also when doing Superman, uh, because you see this earnest, sincere performance, and you believe it from minute one. It's it it really helps to sell the character. Yeah, totally. He grows taller. He grows in confidence. The way yeah. his speech changes, and it's a proper old school acting technique about embodying another character. Even just the way he smiles at the at the Lois oh, Lane. That, oh, that cheeky <laughs> little grin of his. Yeah. <laughs> Yes, I like Pink very much, Lewis. It's the way he does that. Oh, just yeah. the way he does it. Adorable. And, you know, it's yeah. it, it, it is, isn't it? It's adorable and endearing, and and yes. that's and that's the thing about it. And then when he's struggling and that, that inner turmoil of his, and his brow is his brow is furrowed, and he's he's really he's like, lets out that scream. Da, 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 yes. da, da. Yes, right. yeah. Yeah. to fix things. That frustration. That 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 anger at what's been allowed to happen and his, his almost inability to stop it um, is, is really quite remarkable. And yet his vulnerability when he gets, when he's in the swimming pool with the chain around his neck and, the, and he's, just, he's helpless, but he completely gives over to that as an actor. You can't fake those acting skills, those acting chops, you either have them or you don't. I mean, there's a wonderful breadth of style it's not just like being, you know, the big superhero and the shy reporter. There, there's a lot wide variety. Also, the way, as I said before, the way he uses physicality, the way he moves around, yeah. and the way he moves his cape. It's it's really a full range performance. Absolutely, yeah, and it's that old school acting technique, and 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 it, and it works so well because it's genuine, and, and yes. you know it. And it need not have been any more sophisticated than it was, any more sophisticated, and it would have drawn attention to the flaws in the story or the making or the filmmaking techniques or the fact that we're basically putting a two-dimensional comic on the screen, um, which was being laughed at anyway. But the fact that he gave such an earnest, genuine, wholesome performance, you can't fault it because of that. Because yeah. to fault him, you fault the whole film. This is really a rather special film. There's something. There are moments where you could easily burst into tears because it is so genuine and heartbreaking. Oh, yeah, very much so. Everybody involved, from actors to to screenwriters to set designers to John Williams, he didn't poke fun of the material. He wrote it very seriously. There's music that's extremely profound, extremely complex, extremely sophisticated for what is essentially a comic book on, on screen. We're giving it a new lease of life in concert. In yes. 2022, 44 years after the film was made.
that fortress of solitude queue, I mean, there's there's a particular moment. I mean, it's about 10, 11 minutes, isn't it? Uh, about... 13 and a half, to be precise. Sorry, 13 and a half. <laughs> <laughs> but it's there's the long, so many... It's the longest queue in the film, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and there's so many key sync points for you as a conductor, so many key ones, especially the final, you know, moment whenever he, you know, that's kind of that glass, Marlon Brando face shatters. miss that, that that's the whole i mean that's a lot of pressure I suppose. you're working towards all of those cues but also in the earlier scenes you know with general zod and things like that where they go get sent off into prison with the spiraling and, and the music that happens there you know guilty from guilty from all those right. cues those three have to happen and then the dissolving of the faces they spin off all those moments which then lead us to the destruction of, of krypton all those moments you have to hit them in the right place. There's no question because you, otherwise you ruin the, the, the emotional journey for the audience because if you, especially if you know the film, you know what's coming. And because the text often gets lost in the sound effects because it, a lot of it is not important other than the stuff that it is, um, it's the music that's that's letting us know exactly what's happening, what they're feeling, the fear, the anxiety, the, the, the destruction that's going on around them. Um, and then when you, you know, jump forward to his lesson, that big, long fortress of solitude, when he's making his journey up through the ice and the snow and he opens the, at all of those moments, all of those changes of harmony, which are all changes of character, changes of mood, changes of texture in the orchestration as it sort of, you know, becomes sparse and transparent, but also becomes dense uh, in some parts. And particularly when doing it in concert now, of course, a lot of the original score, a lot of it was synthetically produced. Um, so a lot of the sounds were synth and um, and with obviously with the live score, the only synth that, it, that there is is for the voices and a little bit of celesta um, and there's the piano and things like that. So at times you hear things played on flute or piccolo in a low register, which gives you this breathy ethereal quality. Fantastic clarinet, high oboe, um, hand-stopped horns, which give you this, this buzzy quality, um, this very metallic kind of thing, so muted and hand-stopped. Um, sometimes the horns are divided, some are muted, some are not. And then, of course, lots of use of harp and celesta, which, of course, is John Williams' signature thing. Lots of divisi strings playing up very high, lots of playing flageolet, lots of harmonics. Um, to create this otherworldly ethereal soundscape. Lots of, you know, the winds and brass bending between notes to create that quality that would have been created in the synths, but it's done with brass, it's done with woodwind. So a lot of, a lot of things have been rescored purposely to give you a rough idea of, of what it sounds like. But also wonderful thing about the rescoring is that it gives someone like John Williams a chance to reimagine how the score will sound. And of course, that's a wonderful do thing about doing these big pieces in concert is that yes. it's not necessarily about replicating absolutely faithfully what people have heard on the original soundtrack recording. It's about presenting the score in concert 
in one of those rare occasions where an orchestra gets to play every note written for the film rather than just a suite or a few excerpts. You know, the ability to, to sit and play an entire score right through for a film and present it in a way that's not been heard before. Yes. So reimagine the orchestration, find a different way of communicating an, an emotion or creating a soundscape using, using real instruments, using high woodwind or instruments that normally play high, playing low, lots of divisi strings to try and create as much of this, this world as possible, but in an organic symphonic way, because ultimately that's the experience you want to give the audience. Yes. There are people who are coming to watch the film because they love the film and hearing the score performed live is a wonderful bonus. Then there are those who come for the score that want to hear this incarnation, this imagining of the score in the concert hall, with you know, close to 90 musicians playing this glorious music. And the film just happens to be running on a screen suspended up the stage. One of the things I really love about these live-to-picture presentations is the fact that usually it's, you know, the volume of the music sometimes goes over dialogue and sound effects. And, and, and it's wonderful for a, for a film music fan like me and, and Tim and probably many others to finally have this reverse role because it's usually the other way around when you see movies yes. at home or, or mm -hmm. in the theater yeah. you know it's usually music being buried under sound effects especially and even dialogue and it's wonderful to have this reverse role for once in a while well, also with the great thing about these films is because the way they've been engineered to be performed live is that you can individually mix the track. So you have control over dialogue, you have control over the Foley, you have control over the various sort of other sound effects um, so that if something is important, does need to be brought out rather than balancing the orchestra down or remarking dynamics, you can then feature them. And you can, you can then experiment and go a little bit over the top, but that all adds to the overall experience of being in a big concert hall with a big symphony orchestra, with a big screen, listening to a big score with lots of great effects that you can 
almost exaggerate everything for the effect because it's the film in concert. You're not just watching the film in a cinema. You're not just listening to a concert of the music of John Williams. Um, it's the two coming together. So it's a completely different world. And it's, it's incredible how many people walk away from these experiences wondering one, why they've never been to one of these before. And so many people who either have never heard a symphony orchestra play live or have, or have never heard John Williams music played live. They've only ever heard it in, in recordings. And how many of them are desperate to get back into the concert hall to either listen to another film music concert or a live presentation of a film with orchestra or just listen to a symphony orchestra because there are so many who have never been exposed to a live symphony orchestra. And that's, that's also the wonderful thing about presenting films in concert is that you're nurturing and fostering the next generation of concert goers. And, and so many people will have had their introduction to the classical concert hall and a live orchestra through the medium of film with orchestra. And that can only be a good thing. It you know, if, if it entices them back into the concert hall and if they're listening to the, the great scores of the Bernard Hermans, the Max Steiners, the Alfred Newmans, the John Williams, then it won't be long before they're listening to a Mahler symphony because it's along the same lines as far as I'm concerned and, and has equal value in the concert yes. hall as, as any of that repertoire does. For me, I don't regard it any differently. I don't, I don't study it any less or in any less detail or with any less respect than I would a Mahler symphony or a Verdi opera or, or, or anything um, yes. because it, it deserves that because yeah, agree. brilliant writing. And, and, and th that's the thing with the music of John Williams. It will still be here in two, three, four hundred years time, just as the music of Mozart and Haydn and Beethoven has survived three, two, three, four, five hundred years you know, it's, they will still be performing it long after we've all left, and, and rightly so. And, and not just in the context of, of the films, but also music that stands alone in the concert hall. I mean, you could fill days and days and days of, of, of concerts of the music of, of just John Williams alone, and you still wouldn't get through half the catalogue. <laughs> you know? um, and, and that's the thing, and, and so much of this music has rightfully earned its place in the classical concert hall. And, you know, for years, a lot of film music was frowned upon as not being serious music and had no place in the, in the, in, in the classical canon of, of, of concert hall programming, which of course I disagreed with from a very young age because I thought, well, hang on a minute. They've studied their craft. They know their craft. They're brilliant at their craft. What's the issue? You know, mm. um, you know, why not program Chêne d'Amour from Vertigo? That is a stunning piece of concert music and deserves to be performed in a concert hall, just as music by John Williams does. Mm. It's due to, to mention the fact that John Williams himself has done so, so much in that, in that direction because of all the, his years conducting the Boston Pops and bringing film music on the scene more prominently. Yep. And so orchestras started to see that, you know. The value. It, the value, of course. And, and and not just his own music. I mean, when he was conducting the Boston Pops, he started to, you know, to program also pieces from Max Steiner and Arthur Newman. Of and, course, educating and the musicians about the history the value. Of, mm -hmm. of, of what it is and the merit in playing this music. Because some of it is fiendishly difficult. Yes. A lot of mm. those 
Russian, Jewish, Eastern European emigres to Hollywood brought with them a craft which had not been seen before. A, such a sophistication, a complexity, a genius that had not been seen before. And, and they really revolutionized the face of film music composition. Yes. And, and music wasn't just something played in the background to fill a scene. Music played an integral role in telling the story, in, in propelling the dramatic narrative and the, the function and the role of music changed. Therefore, its merit and its validity changed mm -hmm. and and so many orchestras were completely deaf dumb and blind to any of its existence so making them play things like you know gone with the wind i mean they're great epic tone poems you know the music of max mm. steiner and and miklos roja who wrote great symphonic music himself i mean his concerti for violin his viola concerto for example masterful yes masterful pieces and then you listen to the film scores you can hear the origins of his craft yes john williams all the different concerti that he has written over the years bernard herman wrote a fantastic symphony and it's about reminding people that these people they didn't just write film scores yes they're not just great film composers they're great composers and that's, and that's the thing. They don't just scratch out a tune because a director has said, I need music here, I need music here. I mean, these composers have written music from as far back as they remember. They've always written music, like Mozart, like Haydn, like Bach. They always wrote music. And these composers deserve to be uttered in the same breath as those masters because that's what they do. They write music. They know how to communicate a story they know how to convey emotion and they are true masters of their craft yes and also i think that uh, this film concerts live format is giving a, also i think the, an ideal platform for orchestras to be able to perform this kind of music because uh, you know for many years one of the issues in playing film music in concerts is that how you get the scores it's it's, it's not always easy to get a hold especially for older film music. In the case of John Williams, we are so lucky that he spent a lot of time crafting great concert suites by himself yeah, and, and having them published officially so any orchestras in the world can play his suites from Star Wars, E.T., Superman, and whatever. Uh, but I think this specific format, Film Concerts Live, is, is fantastic because it gives an ideal platform for a wider audience to experience how film music works, how film music is essential to, to the success of a movie, mm. and also how much more there is than just, you know, a lovely tune or a, or a memorable of theme. Of it's, course, because everybody knows those themes. Everybody knows yeah. the love theme from, you know, the Princess Leia theme. Everybody knows the, you know, the, the throne room music. Yes, yeah, it's, it's ubiquitous now. I mean, of course, everyone, yeah. absolutely. And it's always done in concert. But what these, what these concerts, as you say, afford people the luxury to delve into all the other music, not the big tunes that, the, the, that form the suites or the individual pieces. It's all the incidental music, which is so vital to communicating the story and linking characters together, which is so important. Like we were saying that, you know, that Clark loses his nerve, for example. Most people wouldn't know that 41 seconds of music or, you know, Baby Lifts the Lorry, that 20 second, second cue.
I, I do distinctly remember when I was a kid and having, I know the Superman, the movie was one of my very first LPs of John Williams. Wonderful double LP and lots of music, of course, lots of music there. And lots of extra music. That yeah, was but part, there was one cue, one sure. fundamental cue missing, which is the, the big helicopter rescue cue. Oh, and, God, and, yeah. And, and it was nowhere on the soundtrack. Yeah. It's a great cue when you see it, the it really wire is. snaps and the helicopter starts to lose its balance. How he builds the tension and how he releases yeah. it. It's a brilliant cue. It's a brilliant cue. Yeah, and then the way he swoops in and, and rescues her. Yes, then, that, he knows. I've got you. You've got me. Who's got you? And the music <laughs> yes. that goes with that. It's it's almost comedic, yeah. but not because yeah. there's this moment of levity in this moment, in this hysteria and this drama this moment of levity and then the theme comes in and sweeps them up and it's it's incredible yeah, yeah <laughs> it really it really is wonderful timpani um wonderful timpani moment whenever he lands with lois on top of that yeah um, yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. 
and the way he shifts them sometimes it's not quite on the downbeat yes. it's either just before or it comes just after yes just, and it always lands with his feet and there's always because it doesn't always land on the beat there is a wonderful moment i think it's the scene where the earthquake starts and he scrambles around and he saves jimmy olsen and there's a moment where he lands and then yep. he go he flies away again and and there's this wonderful moment when he lands and you hear the tum-tum whoosh yep. and then the strings when he flies away Does his little touch and go. And yeah, and, and, yeah. And when I listened to that yeah. as a kid, again, on the soundtrack album, I was thinking about the movie, of yeah. course, and it reminded yeah. me of the scene. But at the same time, I was living my own story, my own movie. Yeah. You know, and you start, Absolutely. and your mind starts to go to yeah. wander around other, other images, other paintings that yeah. are in of your course. head. And that's the wonderful thing, because the evocative power of John Williams' music mm-hmm. is so strong. I mean, oh, the way it sparks the imagination, you don't have to watch the film. You can almost just listen to the music and you can create your own film because- Exactly. And and, and even, even with E.T., you can be on whatever adventure with E.T. you want. And yeah. it doesn't have to be the adventure that you know from the film. And it's the way that he crafted the beautiful scores for Harry Potter. I mean, these oh my, yes. creating these magical worlds and, and really forcing everyone from three to 93 to delve deep into their imaginations and yes. live whatever reality or fantasy they want. There's no rules. There are no holes barred. There's no right or wrong. They're just whatever your imagination can conjure up evoked by this incredible music so when you listen to this cue you know pushing boulders and turning back the world i mean the the fantasy world that you can create in all those cues as the world is turning backwards as he's as he's doing what he's told not to do to interfere with human affairs and and things but he does it anyway because he knows morally and ethically he can't let the people he loves die and you know, yes. and, and the way he does that, but you listen to the music that goes with that, you hear the voice of his father telling him what not to do. Then you hear the world of his earthly father, Jonathan, telling him that there's more to him and there's more that he has to do. And he's not just here for one thing. And mm. this wonderful struggle between what he knows he shouldn't do and what he believes is right, because he's had the ethereal upbringing from his ancestry, this, this, this umbilical call to the ancestry but also that very wholesome upbringing from his earthly parents and and this juxtaposition and this struggle, it's all in the music because that's what's going on in his head, trying to wrestle with his his conscience.
and also finding musical solutions. I mean, the voice of the father is the trumpet, and then the voice of the earthly father is the French the horn. French horn, this yeah. warm, <laughs> yeah. loving embrace right. of the father in the flannel mm. shirts and the warm haze of the farm, this beautiful, round, lyrical French horn playing, which is the most perfect instrument. You just, you just feel like you're being embraced when you hear good French horn playing. And it's, and it's whether it's four in unison or just one, it's just wonderful. But then you have this very direct, clear, authoritarian trumpet for the father, you know, this voice in his ear and the way that John Williams is able to combine them and, and, and using the rest of the orchestral palette mm -hmm. to bring the two worlds together, but also help him come to his own realization about what he's meant to do or not mm -hmm. is, it's incredible. And that's the thing with these scores, which is why I say I really study them in detail to you to look at what orchestral techniques are being used to, to do certain things, to trigger certain emotions, to, to spark emotional events within the listener. And it's only then when you study that you realize that the power of what it does as, as a tool, as a function in the film. And you almost wish that the characters on screen had heard the music before <laughs> yeah, they filmed the scene, you know, because it's mm. always done afterwards. They're acting to silence. It's not like filming a music, a, a movie musical where they're dancing to a pre-recorded track, like in the, all the MGM movie musicals, like American in Paris and Singing in the Rain. You know that the energy that they, with which they are dancing has been given to them because they're listening to the orchestra play these wonderful tap routines and they're miming to their own song. So the, the injection of energy and, and, and verve is coming from the recording. But in these films, especially something like this, where they're using green screen and stuff like that, they've got nothing to work with. So there is the skill of the actor to be able to, to create this inner turmoil, this struggle, this, this dramatic journey, which in turn you can see has inspired the composer to find a way of musicalizing this. And you think, wow, I wonder how differently they would have portrayed these scenes had they heard the music <laughs> for it. But of course, then you think, well, actually the music would not have existed if it weren't for the scenes first captured on film, because that's what inspires the composition, which then takes me back to the genius of how well this music has been crafted, because you could swear that it was the other way around. In this regard, I'm suddenly reminded of a Steven Spielberg story I read somewhere. I don't know if it's apocryphal or not, but um, I think it, sometimes when he's on set during the filming, uh, when maybe an actor is having some difficulties or is maybe having a hard time to find the performance, uh, he, he usually says to them, uh, don't worry, John Williams 
will take care of this and <laughs> we'll put some cellos behind your voice and everything will yes. be fantastic. <laughs> no, 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 don't worry. Whatever you're not doing, John Williams will do for you. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. That's, that's exactly. If you're not quite delivering it, he'll, he'll help everyone feel it. Exactly. And it's, it's so true though. It's, it's amazing how music can, and, and to, to put it bluntly, can fill in the gaps, can, and can, further inform what's what's going on and how they should be thinking and feeling that 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 psychology that the cogs turning in the head the whether it's a direct correlation to what the actor is saying or whether it's a betrayal of what the character is saying because what they're saying what they're thinking are two different things and this ability to steer and navigate the listener and the viewer mm -hmm. to, and to to manipulate much in the way that you know Alfred Hitchcock was you know this voyeuristic approach to filmmaking this sort of looking round corners, looking at people through mirrors, watching people through reflections in glasses and using whatever technique he could to create this voyeuristic way of communicating a story which something wasn't quite right, which Bernard Herrmann then captured so perfectly in the music. This wonderful partnership that, that John Williams had, albeit brief, with Richard Donner was, was incredible, the way he understood exactly what the film needed to be in the various moments where it needed to be truthful and, and human and where it needed to be otherworldly, where, where it needed to be superhero, but not cheesy superhero, he got in one go and there it is. And of course, we're lucky that, you know, with, with Spielberg, there's been something like what, 28, 29 collaborations so far, something like that. Yeah, I think Is 29. Up to 29, yeah, so there yes. you go. Um, and to think that when they found what worked and this musical and directorial shorthand between the two of them, that they just know exactly what it needs to be. And you watch sessions of them together where John is playing things for Steve on the piano and they're talking <laughs> about this and that. Yeah, the famous one with the E.T. where they're talking about where the note comes down at the end and where it should go up and, and all yes. of this. It's a wonderful, yeah. this wonderful understanding of what each other does and this wonderful respect for each other's genius, but also completely open to, to the one or the other making suggestions or making recommendations. Yeah, the soulmates. It's more, more than a collaborator. Absolutely. Who just... Yes, and just totally. let him get on with it. And if there was something that needed discussing, they discussed it. But you, you can you can just tell that, as you said, the, the soulmate nature of their camaraderie is is so evident in the way they work because everything that Spielberg does on the screen is so wonderfully supported by what John Williams does. And you see the fruit of their collective labors in, in these works. And mm -hmm. um, that's why these, these films are a joy to, to accompany. And I say accompany um, because you really are accompanying these, these films. I mean, I keep coming back to E.T. Uh, maybe because that was that that's my favorite John Williams score and I have such such a strong such a strong association with it from 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 a nine-year-old and I've conducted it so many times and it's a score I know intimately his his ability to make you feel the whole gamut of emotions purely musically without a single syllable being uttered on the screen that's also incredible trust from Spielberg's side to say you know what let the music do the talking Exactly. And it does. And it does. And occasionally, you know, a few a few words here and there just to clarify a few things. But other than that, the, the music 
does the work. It tells you exactly just how much pain you should be feeling or how much joy you should be feeling or how much love you should be feeling for these characters. And in Superman, he does the same. When Clark loses his nerve, we all lose our nerve. We all feel it, you know, but then that wonderful sense of elation and, and bravura as, as Superman, the way he composes himself, the way he grows six inches taller, you know, when he's Superman. And you hear that in yeah. the music and, and you, you, do. you feel it yeah. in his body and his posture and, and the little girlish glee of, of Margot Kidder you know, when she's flying, yes, I like pink, you know, do you like pink? And she becomes this giggly little teenager and the music that, this, this bubbly, naive, innocent music, you know, it's like it's like Christmas. It's it's joy, 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 bringing brimming over everywhere. It's incredible, and they're not saying a thing. <laughs> It's a long scene. It's not like just very long scene. It's five and a half minutes. There's a lot there from where the music starts. Where they're standing on the rooftop and he says, No, I'll do the flying. That's okay. With you kind of thing. Until they lift off. And then it's five and a half minutes of this. And then they land back and it's yes. It's just incredible. This 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 frothy bubble, but not frivolous, not flippant in any way. It's all so important. One of the highlights, I think, certainly with the, the film concerts, live presentations, 
is absolutely, you know, to the flip side of the cinema experience, everyone's leaving when the end credits come on. But thankfully, you know, the end credits, you're literally there. And then this is a really impressive, what is it, nine minutes end credits uh, sequence? Well, the last cue in this version is only three minutes because of all the main titles at the beginning, which is five minutes, you see. So that whole sequence from him, from the end of Turning Back the World, where he then delivers Lex Luthor into the prison yard to the end of the film is two minutes and 53 seconds. It's really quite short and sweet for the concert version. I see. So you're not doing like the love theme end credits. You're not no, doing any of no, that. No, in the oh, concert version, it's the, the truncated, it's the truncated version. It's not the full love theme, which then goes for another five and a half minutes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. Yeah, no, I see. Well, I suppose that makes sense because, it, I mean, it's such a long film as it is. Yes. Well, the first um, half is an hour and 18 minutes and whatever the second half is, and it's 88 minutes worth of music in that. So yeah, it, yes, yes, in okay. the concert version, they decided to, to keep it a little bit briefer. Yeah, so Right, so, so it literally so finishes with the Superman theme and then, yeah, then for us. When he okay. flies off, then we hear the theme the last time and the big, the big crash and, and we're done and Superman in concert logo comes up. Oh, yeah. fantastic. Oh, mm-hmm. can't, can't wait to see it. Can't wait to see it. It's going to be tremendous, really is. What, what, a, what a thrill, what a thrill. Oh, it will certainly be, absolutely. And I also think that these live-to-picture presentations are so important from the perspective of having these Mm. film scores preserved and carefully notated and properly archived because uh, it it gives orchestras a great platform to present film music in concert. And at the same time, it gives the composer the opportunity to have his work properly restored and and put together in a proper way and reconstructed for concert as well looking at using alternate versions that were recorded slightly longer versions slightly shorter versions or reintroduce music that perhaps was cut before the final release of the film and as you said Mauricio to to preserve the integrity of these complete scores because most film scores just of, of the 30s, 40s and 50s just don't exist anymore. A lot of the music ended up in landfill when they were building golf courses in LA, you know, <laughs> to, which is criminal when to think there's, there's all those wonderful orchestrations by Johnny Green and Conrad Salinger and all those big guys that wrote for all those MGM things, all you know, landfill when they were clearing out the archives because they needed space for shelving. And they literally took them off the shelf and put them in the rubbish bins, you know, um, and, and it's just criminal. And of course, apart from the, the handfuls of things like Max Steiner and Franz Waxman and Bernard Herrmann, where someone had the good sense to preserve them, usually members of the family kept things on archives, a lot of that stuff is completely lost, never to be retrieved. Or you might find a violin part or a flute part or a double bass part, or maybe a piano reduction, a short score that the composer may have sketched before fleshing out an orchestration with some annotations where someone then has to painstakingly transcribe from recordings to try and flesh out these orchestrations. And thankfully, you know, people have done that over the years, but there are a lot of scores that will be completely lost because of that you know scores are gone with the wind you know thankfully we've got Casablanca and some of those big pieces but with all the John Williams stuff thankfully it was all being written at a time where people weren't throwing things out and of course going forward now film composers are being very canny and very clever 
they're writing their scores in such a way that they can be performed live. And so much more of that is happening, certainly with the big Disney films, that's where they're going, like all the live action films and, and things where they know they're already thinking this can be performed live. But so many composers now are thinking along those lines. And I think it's a wonderful way of building in longevity and 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 making sure that your work is preserved by absolutely writing yes. it in such a way that it can then be performed live and what's great about you know people like john goberman in new york who's restored all the mgm classics mm. well, he was one of the pioneers wasn't he he was one of the pioneers and i do a lot of them i do wizard of oz the sound of music and american in paris um, we're now in the throes of preparing uh, the adventures of robin hood the corn gold score from 1908 oh, wow. So, Fantastic. you know, we're, we're looking at all of those and he's, he was a wonderful pioneer in being able to strip away the soundtrack and reconstruct these scores with people like uh, Patrick Ross and Christopher Palmer and all these guys rebuilding all these scores. And thankfully that still happens, but a lot of the material is lost. And at least with the John Williams, we know it's all there ready to be used. When he's ready to give it, he's go ahead to say, okay, let's do this one next. Let's do this one next. And Yeah, yeah, it's you to mention the guys the, that works at Joanne Kane Music Service, yeah. the team that works for him and has done all this yes. music preparation also mm. for these concerts. It's, it's, I mean, it's an amazing team. Mark Graham, isn't it? One of them? Yeah, yes, that's right, yeah. I mean, it's an enormous undertaking to, you know, because with, with some of the scores, they were never properly digitally engraved, you know, things like Home Alone and Raiders and things, you know, getting, getting hold of the handwritten orchestral parts and entering them into the computer and engraving them and then going through and checking them for mistakes and then generating full scores. I mean, Home Alone is still the handwritten score. Wow. <laughs> Oh, cool. Wow. <laughs> like, it's this thick. It's one volume. There's a few bits which have been engraved electronically and they're digitally printed, uh, where they've adapted some of the original music for live presentation. And some things which were just so completely illegible that they had to be engraved. <laughs> Um, because some of it just looks like chicken scratchings on the page. It was, it was never really published apart from the suite of three pieces, um, which appear in the score printed, but everything else is, is handwritten. And of course, in that very old style of only four vertical bars to the page, so of course, the score is mammoth because every, every eight bars you're turning. <laughs> sometimes if something, if something is in three-quarter time then you might get six bars across a page you know? it's that very old school music copying style <laughs> and that's and that's the reason why williams when he's recording he actually uses his own sketches on, on the music yeah. stand because right. otherwise he would have to turn page every every five seconds <laughs> yeah he uses his short score annotation yeah. which is which is a folio size, but split over two big systems. So he's got a reduction with the strings and the brass and the winds and perhaps a piano stave, mm -hmm. and then another block of that at the bottom. So, you know, on each page, he may have anywhere up to 16 bars on a page by two, there's 32 bars, because you don't want to be going flick, 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 flick <laughs> in a recording <laughs> session. <laughs> And he still writes all by hand with pencil. I mean, that's, that's... Of course, and he knows what he's doing, but also he's got his clock markings in with his big clock on the stand, so he knows where he needs to be. And of course, in some cases, they also use the punches and streamers. But because he's nowhere, he knows where they are, 
he doesn't have to do too much marking in the score because he knows what it is. And then what happens is they just make changes on the stand for orchestrations during scoring sessions, but leaves the orchestrators to keep tabs of what the full score is doing so that they can generate parts. He just makes little adjustments in his short score and, and he's happy and that, that's it. <laughs> sure that John Williams will be very interesting to see how this performance in Lucerne will go down because uh, it seems that he really cares he really has a special interest in these projects in this live to picture presentation you know it's I think he he, he puts a lot of extra care and detail on, on these presentations he takes an active interest in, in how these are prepared and he has an active say in what music gets used or doesn't use and how and if there needs to be any reworkings he does them for example the the et the on track he purposely wrote that for the hollywood bowl concert in 2015 and it appears now when you do it in concert it's his on track and any adjustments that he's made he's officially sanctioned them or done them himself to make sure that they're right. He really cares about the integrity of his music. He cares about the longevity of the integrity of his music. So if there's anything he can do to contribute to that, then he does. And I think that's, that's a wonderful testament to him as a musician, to him as a, as a composer, but also to him as a, a human being that he really does genuinely care about the, the purpose of his music and, mm. and the way people played in years to come. And it's not about being a control freak or micromanaging how his music is performed. It, it comes from a place of love and respect for people like conductors and musicians as well, because we think about his upbringing as a musician, as a jazz musician, as a pianist, you know, yes. learning his craft. And he didn't just arrive fully formed making millions of dollars writing scores, you know. So he really is one of us in terms of, of, of his existence and, and the way he, he's, he's come up through the business and, and, you know, the business of writing music, the business of performing music. So I really do take my hat off to the fact that even this far down the line, I mean, he wrote this in 1978. It is, you know, let's, let's call it, they were preparing it in, you know, 2018, which was the 40th anniversary of the film. Already they had in mind to do this. Um, and then by 2020, he was still sticking his hand in all these years on, 42 years on, now 44 years yes. on, still actively investing in his music, not just going, oh, I wrote that, fine, whatever, let somebody else make some adjustments. But no, he wrote it, he still cares about it, which is, which is incredible. The fact that he's crafted these suites yeah. for symphony halls to, to make sure that the symphony orchestras can play his music in a in a grand way crafting these wonderful symphonic suites which 
work so well together because of the way they're being crafted with lovely ergonomic tempo changes and the right bits from the right pieces. He's still doing that now with adapting his pieces for Anne-Sophie Mutter, playing pieces on solo violin, but, but not just stripping the melodies from the flutes and oboes and giving it to the violin, completely recrafting the orchestra, yes. completely reimagining the orchestral palette so that it really feels like a piece that was written for solo violin and orchestra. Yes. Not just an adaptation, the way he's written them for Yo-Yo Ma, for cello, and the way he's meticulously reimagined his own work shows you just how not precious he is about going, well, that's the way I wrote it and that's the way it stayed. No, he's never to attach this Simpson. I mean, he cares, but he's not too, as you said, sticky to, to a, a specific thing. I mean... And someone can only do that if they're truly comfortable and confident and, and not afraid of losing any sense of integrity about it. They're so confident and so comfortable in their own skin that they can be, you know, almost, dare I say, self-deprecating and go, oh, yeah, I may have written that 40 years ago, but actually, you know what? I can do better than that. Let's do this. Let's use this excuse. I've got the one of the world's finest violinists who wants to play my music. Great. Let's have another crack at this. And the way he's done it with such humility mm -hmm. and such grace and charm, but also at the same, with the same breath, no pun intended, breathing new life into music that's 40 and 50 years old yes. to make it sound like it was written yesterday because you know what? It could have been written yesterday because it's still so fresh. It's still so relevant, but it's that, it's that tradition of taking care of your music and it will take care of you. Well, absolutely. And, and I'm, I'm reminded actually of something very significant that the wonderful Sue Mallet of the London Symphony Orchestra said last year, Mitch and I had a great conversation with her and Ellis, her colleagues. And I'll never forget what she said. John Williams has a fear of takedowns. He just despises any kind of takedowns of his music. And that's why, you know, the, the, the Blue Book Club or the How Leonard edition is such a genius idea because there's no risk of any dodgy kind of takedowns and absolutely no one doing any sort of weird wonderful reimaginings of his orchestrations or weird yes. descriptions or exactly he's like no by all means play my music in my in concert halls as often as you like absolutely but i'll tell you how it needs to be played to exactly. yes the integrity of the orchestration yes but also the integrity of the film from which it comes, because that's also very important. You can't just, mm. you can't just detach it from its existence with the film because one inspired the other. So there, there has to be that cohesion, that, that correlation between the two needs to exist. So why not publish them? Why not make them readily available to orchestras all over the world? And then of course, now with these new versions that he's done with Anne-Sophie Mutter and various other people, you know, eventually I hope he will publish those so that other musicians can, can get to play them as well. You know, because they're, they're reworkings which deserve to be heard in the concert hall by, you know, anyone who wants to play them. You know, Joshua Bell, Daniel Hope, you know, any of these great concert violinists should be allowed to, to play these, these work, you know, because they deserve to be heard because they are such wonderful reimaginings of yeah very virtuosic in some places quite astonishing and remarkable i wonder how it is for himself to be constantly confronted <laughs> with his past self when when he comes to perform these pieces in concerts and he always has this 
you know, pieces now ubiquitous, like we said, like an Imperial March or Princess Leia or Superman theme or even Harry Potter. I, I wonder how he feels in being put in front of the, the person who wrote the, those pieces was a, another person in many ways. I mean, he's the same, of course. Of course. But at the same time, it's, a, you know, it's 45 years old me that wrote that. Probably nowadays I would write something very different from that. That's the thing. When you think about when he wrote some of those great scores, which are full of youthful exuberance and imagination. I mean, he was born in 1932. He wrote E.T. in 1982. The man was 50, but he wrote with the, the joie de vivre of a, of a 20 year old, of yes. and the imagination of a 10 year old. You know, you think he was forever youthful and you look at him now on the podium, sure he's 90, perhaps he doesn't have that sprightliness in his step anymore, but you look at his face, you look at his hands, you look at his body language, the way he communicates with an orchestra, he's still a man of 35. <laughs> yes. The body may be that of a 90 year old man, and you think he's always had this, this wonderful spark, this, this youthful energy and this exuberance. Because then when you think, okay, wind the clock forward to Harry Potter films, which are two, you know, 2000, so 20 years on, the man was nearly 70, you know, when he was writing the Harry Potter films. Yes. Yet where they were written by a 14 year old boy whose imagination was boundless and you hear the simplicity in that theme in the celesta but then that sense of the imagine in the string the stirring that e minor up and down up and down and that's the imagination swirling that's the brain conjuring up images where can i go where can i go i can go here i can go there i can go anywhere i want because i'm only bound by the limits of my imagination and that's yes. all here, this this stirring and whirring and buzzing and this, this, this energy. I mean, the man was nearly 70 when he wrote that stuff. He, he's still uh -huh. in touch with that uh, childhood uh, spirit. I mean, that he... is the key thing, Maurizio. He, he, he didn't become an old man. As he became an older man and an old man, he never aged as a composer. He matured in terms of his technique, his craft. He kept sophistication. Yes. He did his complexity, his sophistication. He became more and more erudite with his musical language and economical. And but that youthful exuberance, that imagination, never aged. He didn't get old. He didn't become an old composer. He got better and more adventurous. I mean, when you think about yeah. the third Harry Potter film. Yeah. <laughs> criminal that he can go on and keep writing and you think yeah. my god just when you thought the first one was good then you of secrets and then prisoner of Azkaban. Oh, it's, it's just incredible like the night bus that you know oh, jazz. Oh, and you the know, way and he that, looking know. back to his his star wars roots with the you know with with that whole you know jazz combo that, yes oh my god you know, <laughs> da, 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 it was just like and then he just goes back <laughs> to all of that yes. then you listen to his other scores right. from that era with that whole all the jazz influences yes there was a nice photo on facebook that just just the other day, Conrad Pope posted about oh, uh, a yes. young, 17 oh, years old. I know that. I'll yes. play. Oh, yes. brilliant. Yeah, yeah, it was very yeah. cool. Very cool. And you see that, you know, he's, he has the same face in that photo as he has today. He yes, was just 17. Same but, wide eyes. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, like yeah, everything yeah. is possible and nothing, there's not, no limits. It's like it can all happen. It can all be done. Everything in its time. And 
that that youthful exuberance and that spark of energy is just incredible and you you see footage of him from those early days and he's he is like an excited child with a new with a new project and the way he talks about his projects at the time but also in later footage when he speaks retrospectively about things that he's done you can see that twinkle and that joy that appears because he's reminded of how good he felt at the time doing it and the joy it brought to people the first time they heard it and the wonderful sense of achievement standing in front of an orchestra, more often not the, <laughs> the LSO, conducting these scores for the first time and watching footage of the orchestra thinking, what the hell is this? And that, that wonderful response that he would have received from that, seeing the effect that his music was having on players and how much better musicians these musicians became through playing his music, because this music challenged musicians in ways that no other film music had challenged them before. You know, they were challenged in the 30s and 40s with those big, you know, Eastern European emigres to Hollywood because music became much more complex and much more involved and big orchestrations. But then John Williams did it again because he forced people to think very differently about color and tone, articulation, rhythm in, in a way that they hadn't been confronted with before. And of course, it made people, rather than play in a relaxed fashion, actually sit up and pay yes. attention and think about blend and color and the way he used orchestral sections and sonorities very distinctly, but also very consistently in a film score and going, this is the role of the French horns. These are the roles of the trombones. These are the, this is the role of the woodwinds. You know, this is the role of the strings. Harp and celesta on pedestals and people then quickly started to learn what it is to play John Williams music and the function you have as a musician in conveying his music because of what it's going to do for the film and that that changed everything and he's still doing it to wrap up our conversation, uh, I'd love to mention the fact that what organizations like City Light Concerts and Film Concerts Live are offering to worldwide audiences is absolutely astonishing, I think. If you think about a movie like Superman and a score like Superman and all the other projects that these organizations are producing, it's a wonderful way of presenting film music to worldwide audiences uh, because, for example, Superman is going to be performed next summer also at the Royal Albert Hall, and you will conduct there too, Anthony. It's important to give credit to all the people that do a lot of work uh, to present these concerts to, to audiences and give a huge credit also to orchestras that decide to put them into their own season programs. And it's also... a uh, a testament of the quality of John Williams' music and how 
his music can be preserved for a, for a future generation and for a wider audience. And it's and it's important that this that this continues because this, as I said earlier, uh, this music deserves to keep its place in the concert hall. It deserves to keep its place in the concert hall, not just as concert pieces to stand alone as part of an orchestral program, but also in the context of of a live presentation because it gives people a completely different insight into how music works in a film um, and to be in the same physical space where the orchestra is playing the music, where the music is being made, where you can feel the vibrations physically, when you can, when you can almost reach out and touch the people who are making those sounds, which are contributing to your emotional journey with the film is a remarkable experience and not like anything else anybody will experience because watching a film in a cinema with a fantastic state-of-the-art sound system it's coming through speakers it's not being generated in the same physical space as you and in the concert hall you have that it's bouncing off the walls and if you're close enough to the stage you can feel it in your feet you know when you have seven or eight double basses chugging away ten violoncelli you feel the power of that and, and that contributes, so that, that moving air, the vibrations in, in the space contributes because you feel that physically and it does, it does affect you. And when you marry that up with the images on the screen, the emotional journey is heightened and the satisfaction and the way people think about film and film music changes and changes forever and changes for the better. And when you're blessed to be able to do the scores of John Williams, then, you know, it's, it, it, is, it is a gift, <laughs> really, <laughs> for everyone, for everyone involved, the audience, the producers, the conductor, the musicians on stage, everybody gets something out of this. Yeah. And this is the most perfect way to end our conversation and to end part one of our Superman podcast special. Anthony, uh, thank you so much. I am looking forward a lot to meet you in person in Lucerne yes. when I will attend the world premiere on April 29. And I am so thrilled to finally experience one of my all-time favorite movies in this special live-to-picture presentation. And I guess it's the same for you, Tim. It's, no, it's, it's going to be fantastic. and I can't wait to experience it. Hopefully in London. Anthony, grazie mille. Thank you very much. Alla prossima e ci vediamo a Lucerna. Ci vediamo a Lucerna. <laughs> Thank you, Tim. Thank you, Tim. For I'm not all... going to try and compete with that. <laughs> but, uh, bellissimo, bellissimo. Grazie. <laughs> Stay well, you both. Stay tuned for part two of this Superman in Concert podcast special coming soon with guest Mike Matasino. Thank you for listening and visit the legacyofjohnwilliams.com to keep connected with us. of John Williams.